0: the current legal system asks these questions. What law was broken? Who broke it? And how should they be punished? And the paradigm shift of restorative justice asks a very different set of questions. Who was harmed? What do they need? And whose obligation is it to meet those needs? In restorative justice, the person who is centered is the person who's experienced the harm. That's where it becomes a justice paradigm. That is when we start to pull in the person who's caused the harm. The work is around resourcing that person to meet this crime survivor's need. So how do we wrap around both of these people? And there is no us and them here. Our healing is actually going to be collective.
1: Welcome to Mind & Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Before we begin, just a quick heads up for our listeners. This episode does contain discussions of childhood sexual abuse. So please take care and consider whether that's appropriate for your listening right now. My guest today is lawyer, activist, and restorative justice expert, Sujata Balaga. Sujata's work reimagines our current legal and justice system in the United States and embraces the full humanity of both those who experience harm and those who cause it. These topics have huge implications for our society, And whether or not you've spent time thinking about or engaging with the legal system, I think you're going to get a lot out of this. I got to speak with Sujata earlier this spring, and we start with her personal story and how the trauma and difficulties she faced in her childhood shaped her work trajectory and caused her serious suffering as a young person. Sujata also shares how an unexpected meeting with the Dalai Lama changed her and we talk through the specific advice he gave her that was so transformative. We discuss her career in law and her decision to become a public defender, and then her shift into restorative justice. Sujata describes some of the problems with our current legal system in the US and how the approach of restorative justice helps to remedy those problems. Along the way, we get into some fascinating territory like personal responsibility, forgiveness, justice, the power of language, understanding causes and conditions, the role of contemplative practice, and next steps for the restorative justice movement. I really appreciate Sujata's openness and vulnerability in sharing her story with us, and also the beautiful way that she's transformed her own experience of trauma into healing for herself and many others. She also models the ability to hold two competing ideas simultaneously and with care and compassion. And this is something I think we can all use more of. As always, there's lots more from Sujata in the show notes, so please do check those out. And this show actually marks the end of our sixth season. So we'll be off for a couple months creating new episodes for you, and we'll be back in your feeds this fall. In the meantime, check out our archives to find any episodes you might've missed or revisit some of your favorites. There's actually more than 50 in there now, which is pretty exciting. And thank you as always for listening and sharing and supporting the show. Okay, I'm really happy to share this one with you to close out our season. This conversation left me so inspired about the capacity we have as humans to transform trauma into healing and love And to put that love out into the world and catalyze more healing. I hope you feel the same. It's my great pleasure to share with you Sujata Baliga. Well, I'm so happy to be joined today by Sujata Baliga. Sujata, thank you so much for being here. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Wendy.
1: I often like to begin hearing a little bit of the background from the guests and how they ended up doing the work that they're doing. So uh, I know you've been quite open about your experiences as a child and the harms that you experienced. Um, So however you wanna take that path, we would just love to hear some background.
0: Thank you so much, yeah. So I am open about the troubles and traumas that I experienced in my childhood. And just as a starter, as we're engaging in this, um, listening to this particular uh, story, And trajectory uh, which leads to a really good place um, is uh, just a reminder to people who are listening in to take good care of themselves um, because there's some heavy topics in here. Um, I don't like trigger warning so much because everyone isn't necessarily triggered or maybe trigger isn't always the exact experience but just uh, to hold the story with compassion towards yourself uh, is just maybe a starting place. And so the starting place for me starts primarily in rural Pennsylvania uh, when I was a child, I was growing up in the 70s and 80s in a small town in in, in a rural part of Pennsylvania, where I was the only child of color in my school. And um, at home, I was uh, being sexually abused by my father. And so I was sort of experiencing a lot of challenges, both outside and challenges as sort of a, a not the best way to say it, I guess, uh, real uh, difficulties, real, real struggles, um, both outside my home and inside my home. And over the course of, you know, my childhood, I was just basically trying to survive. I always looked to spiritual things for answers, um, but they weren't always forthcoming. And, um, but then sort of in my later teens, my father, who was sexually abusing me, passed away. And I really dove headlong into trying to make sure that this never happens to anyone else. And so that was a lot to bite off as a teenager um, and a young adult. I spent all of my time sort of volunteering with or working with Right, crisis hotlines, uh, domestic violence shelters, things of that nature. And I thought that I could heal myself by turning my attention sort of outward. And it was a good, you know, idea. Outward towards other people's suffering, right? You think about what His Holiness says if you... Um, really want to be happy, right? There's this wise selfishness of attending to the well-being of others. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was some wisdom there even in my youth, right? And I think also was really looking for validation for my own experiences, like looking outward to see, oh, hey, this is happening uh, with lots of people. And so that was it was beneficial to some degree, but uh, my workaholism or the desperation I felt for no one to live through what I lived through meant that there was like mm-hmm. zero attending to my own healing. Uh, so the balance wasn't there, right? And so I, you know, eventually my my early 20s was really in a very, very bad place. Um, I was applying to law schools thinking that I would go be a prosecutor who would specialize on working well with survivors around uh, intimate partner and sexual violence. But I had constant blinding migraines, um, severe stomach problems, and yeah, by, by the time I was 23, 24, my personal relationships were pretty disastrous. And uh, I was just an all-around really unhappy person. That time I was living in Mumbai. I was trying to help a friend, uh, my then boyfriend, with some work he was doing around trafficking. And uh, I had a complete breakdown. And my whole world was falling apart. And I sort of went on this solo journey to Baramshala where I had through this course of beautiful set of events where this lovely Tibetan family who took an interest in me. And, and as we were talking about things, um, one of the things that I think they found curious about me was that I was this 24 year old Indian American running around India by herself, which they kind of found concerning. (laughs) But they also found me interesting because I was quite curious about their trauma. Mm. Uh, rather than they said that they joke. They said, most people come here to ask us whether or not the Dalai Lama can levitate. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Instead, you're talking to us. You didn't really even come here to see the Dalai Lama. Uh, you are here asking us, how are we living in exile? And how did you escape? How are you happy? You know. And so in the course of those conversations, I was transparent maybe for one of the first times in my life with people who I'd say are adjacent culturally to my own cultural community, about the trauma that I had suffered in my childhood. And during a dinner with this one family, they suggested that, oh, uh, you know, we practice forgiveness, but we don't really know what to say about that with regard to interfamilial sexual violence, a harm. Hmm. Uh, why don't you ask the Dalai Lama? And I was like, I found this very amusing. I was like, I literally said, well, isn't he busy? Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, how do you ask the Dalai Lama, you know? And so somebody there happened to then be like a protocol officer for the Tibetan government in exile. And it was such a humble, it was like a guest house that they were in the middle of building. It was a super humble family. And the idea that this guy had been hanging out with would know the answer to the question of how do you ask the Dalai Lama a question, right? And so he uh, suggested that I write a note and drop it off at this door, you know, in the green building behind the temple. I was like, what? the second door, you know, and he gave me all these specifics (laughs) And I was like, "What do you mean? Write it out." And he, I had my journal with me. There, he said, like, "Just write a note in here and tear a page out, and just drop it off." I was like, "This seems very informal, but okay." And so I did. And at that point, I was still too ashamed to tell the Dalai Lama's office what I really wanted to ask.
1: Right? Mm.
0: I mentioned briefly, you know, the the work that I'm doing, but I didn't name my personal connection to it. Instead, I I wrote, "Anger is killing me, but it motivates my work." How do you work on behalf of abused and oppressed people without anger as the motivating force? So I dropped that off, and then they told me to come back in a week, and I came back in a week, and I thought that, you know, they were going to give me some little thank you for your note, you know, it'd be nice to get a little memento from His Holiness's office, and instead they usher me into Dengela's uh, Tenzingichi Taetong's desk, and I sit down with this man, and he's like, We were really moved by your letter. And through the course of the conversation, he was like, would you like to meet his holiness next Wednesday? I'm like, oh my goodness. what are you talking about? Because <laughs> I was like, you see me, right? I am a mess. I am crying and cursing and I am unhinged uh, young woman who is really struggling and for some reason... Bengala thought that was exactly who needed to be given an hour of his holiness's time. So so I had this amazing opportunity to be with his holiness where he uh, initially was very reticent to give me advice about forgiveness. He was actually quite um, generous about the need to be enraged about the things I was enraged about. Um, and only after I really, really pressed him um, and kind of got in an argument, of course, he wasn't arguing, I was arguing, uh, that he gave me some really specific advice about how I might forgive. And um, the first piece of which was he said I had a very bright mind, but that it was completely out of my own control and that my rage was a part of that. And so uh, his first and most important advice to this day was to meditate, uh, to learn that anger was just one manifestation, or this level of unchecked rage was just one manifestation. Had you had any experience with meditation at that point? Nothing really. Wow. A little bit making it up myself kind of stuff. I was raised Hindu and my family we really were sort of what we call jnana marg people, which is like the really studying the texts and debating and being in deep dialogue about these micro permutations of things. And a little bit of bhakti, like chanting and, and things of that nature, singing, dancing. But I had left Hinduism sometime before and was floating about sort of with deep religious and spiritual desires, but with no home uh, to put them in. So... You know, that was his, his advice to me to meditate was the first real time I thought about. I mean, I thought about it a little bit. I realized that there was some benefit to it. And I had met someone earlier who had suggested it to me. And I had been trying to get into a Vipassana course before meeting him. But every course, it was full. In India, you know, you're trying to get into Igatpuri. Even back then, you know, the courses were full months and months and months in advance. And so, but yeah, that's what I ultimately ended up doing, was sitting a 10-day course. There in India, No, actually, I came home um, because I was about to start law school. And so I had gotten into law school. I was terrified about my ability to actually do it. I was so unwell and unhappy. So I came home and I had a little bit of gap, a little time. And I was trying to decide whether or not to try to make some more money before starting law school and get a job or that there was this opportunity arose. I got off a wait list for the Shelburne Falls Vipassana. So that is where I went and sat a 10-day course, and so I had a, a really amazing experience. It was terrible in the beginning. I wanted to leave on the first day and the third day and the fifth day. I, I actually kept meeting with the assistant teachers and be like, you need to let me leave, and they were like, you've always been free to leave, but, you know, that the problems you're describing are a part of the journey, and we think that if you stay, you will find your way through, and so... There was a line in a book that I held very close to me for, you know, many, many years called The Courage to Heal. It is a book for uh, women survivors of child sexual abuse. And there's a line in there that says the only way out is through. And I think I relied on that a lot during that of course. (laughs) The only way out is through. So uh, don't try to run away. Just try to stay. Stay with the breath. Just stay. Stay with your memories and Return to the breath, you know, like memory comes, return to the breath. The flashback is showing up, return to the breath. And so it was a very intense course. Um, It was intense for me, but not so intense that I didn't go back like eight more times in my life, Mm. Um, particularly because on the last day they teach metta bhavana practice, uh, loving kindness. And it was actually during that metta bhavana practice that I was able to follow His Holiness's second piece of advice to me. So the first was to meditate, and the second piece of advice was. Uh, he said, you might want to consider aligning yourself with your enemies. He said, don't excuse their behavior, but open your heart to their humanity. Uh, consider their position and their needs. And so in the audience, when he suggested this, again, I was a pretty intense young woman. <laughs> and I kind of lost my temper again on the Dalai Lama. And I was like, I'm not aligning myself with anybody. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I'm going to law school to lock those people up. His holiness got such a kick out of me. He like leaned over and he's like, Okay, okay, then you just meditate. <laughs> you know, so every time I was like that, you know, he would just so deftly switch the energy, you know, and I was able to stay in this conversation in such a heartbroken and enraged state of mind. And his holiness just handled me with so much tenderness and love and compassion and transparency. I mean, I was 24, and he asked me how old I was, and then he was telling me about how when he was 24, he was, like, escaping his nation, and there was just this deep camaraderie and bonding that made it possible for me to be transparent. He was so transparent that it made it possible for me to be transparent, so. So beautiful. Yeah, by the time we were, like, the second part of the advice, which I was literally enraged by his advice, you know, we could be joking about me being enraged by his advice instead of me just being this, like, Fired up, angry young person, trying to teach this person who knows so—I mean, so much more than like all of us, but like particularly me at that time. He was just bemused by me, without being insulting. Like he was bemused, and I never felt offended, and I was so easily offended. So uh, it was a very, was a very precious—I mean, beyond precious, most precious encounter of my entire life. So, yeah. So that second piece of advice align yourself with your enemy, consider their humanity, their position, and their needs. Um, it, it sort of started there with that metta bhavana practice, where in the experience of sending loving kindness out to others, I had an experience of my father, a, a visual actually, of a flashback of him abusing me, and I didn't exclude him from my loving kindness. And in that moment, you know, this uh, feeling, this incredible feeling of peace, of loving kindness I was able to extend to him and in that moment he sort of dissolved into light and when I think about him to this day I have nothing but fondness now I have concern I have questions about what might have happened to him that he did that to me I want to know about the young him information that's lost now because that generation is primarily lost um but I don't carry any more anger towards him. And what's interesting is that after that experience, my migraines went away, my stomach problems went away, my relationship problems went away. Mm. Like it was, it was a big turning point in my life. So, and then you know, in, in getting to the work that I do today, what was interesting was this: that when I started law school, I, you know, all of my motivation for being a prosecutor was gone. I realized that I was really operating out of a place of my own anger, um, and and that I didn't really believe that the criminal legal system as it operates in the United States and most places in the world, if if not everywhere, um, that a punitive model of justice is not going to actually get us uh, to healing and into safety uh, and meaningful accountability. And so uh, I ended up actually becoming a criminal defense lawyer uh, instead, uh, literally on the other side, which then I really got to double down on His Holiness's second piece of advice was to align myself with my enemies even ultimately representing people who had committed homicides, even people who had killed the people they said that they loved, representing people who had sexually abused children, like to get all the way to uh, representing the people that I had previously considered my enemies was really, um, in many ways, the best way to continue to follow His Holiness's advice. And then ultimately, all aspects of the criminal legal system, whether it was my victim advocacy prior to law school, or my defense work after law school. Everything always felt insufficient because again, the system itself, I think is not designed to produce healing um, and meaningful justice. That's how I found my way to the field of restorative justice, which is a bit of what I do today. Yes. Well, before
1: we move on, I just really wanna thank you for sharing that and um, being so vulnerable and it's a tragic and beautiful and inspiring story. And um, yeah, I just wanna acknowledge that. Thank you, Wendy.
0: Yeah, it's actually, today it is my joy to share it. Um, when I was younger, like I said, I couldn't even put the words in the letter to this holiness, right? And today I feel that I've come so far in my healing journey that I have to remember that my story is really impactful to other people and not just drop it in some way that is um, disrespectful of other people's experience of it, right? And so um, so in that, I just want to thank the listeners for holding my story and and being with me where I am today with it.
1: I appreciate that you drew that link with your decision to then become a public defender and how that really weaves into, you know, His Holiness's suggestion to align with your enemies and the work that you had done already. I wanted to pick your brain about that experience of being a public defender and representing these folks who have caused harm in many cases, and also with the Buddhist lens of causes and conditions, right? And I'm sure you must have heard a lot of stories from them, you know, that other people in the in the legal system wouldn't be aware of. And so I'm just wondering if you could reflect on that and, you know, the whole issue of responsibility versus all the causes and conditions that lead people to act in harmful ways. And it seems like, you know, it becomes a very
0: muddy area, but really important to to look at. Oh, Wendy, what a beautiful question. Thank you so much. Um, so. I love this thing called VENT diagrams, V-E-N-T diagrams, and I would suggest people follow them on Instagram. So what they are is they are Venn diagrams, and the things in the two circles that have that overlapping space in the middle, you put things in those two circles that are both true and seemingly completely contradictory. Mm, Love it. Yeah, right? So you can think of them, I think of them with regard to my father. For example, my father was deeply invested in my well-being and my happiness. That is a part of how I experienced him. And the other circle, right, is that my father sexually abused me. And the truth of my relationship sits in the middle of that, the truth of my relationship with my father. So sometimes I do a uh, like I literally do a visualization when I meditate of those kinds of vent diagrams that Anu, my father, as I call him, Anu, anu and I are sitting in that space in the middle
1: mm. of that
0: Venn diagram, vent diagram. And so I think about the two questions that you asked, like about causes and conditions and about individual responsibility also being a vent diagram. I also think about this in terms of like, okay, try not to go too far down a Buddhist rabbit hole. But when I think about we say form is emptiness, and emptiness is form and things of that nature, right? Um, Like form and emptiness being on the two sides of that diagram. And as we learn more and more, we start to like sort of bring the two sides of the diagram together so that they're literally just two circles that are totally on top of each other. So how do we hold two 100% true things that are opposite of each other simultaneously true, right? So like, we're actually like making the overlapping space bigger, 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 bigger until it's totally overlapping. And that is what I think about individual accountability and causes and conditions. So first time I represented anyone, you know, I'm doing their social history and I'm finding out that their childhood makes mine look like a cakewalk, right? And I don't, I don't say those words to in any way diminish what it is that I have lived through. But I also did not live with the layers and layers and layers of structural oppression and non-stop terror for my, like, survival and, you know, gunshots and hunger. And, I mean, it's just the kinds of things that my clients have told me. I know that they are true, but there's a piece of you that wants to believe that the world cannot be this terrible. And there are places in the world that are this terrible uh, in the U.S. and, and everywhere. And so... When I think about those causes and conditions, I literally can't imagine how you wouldn't end up killing somebody if you were growing up there. If you think about having been sexually abused by so many people and then sold into sexual slavery as a child, I can't imagine that you wouldn't end up sexually abusing a child. And at the same time, I believe that each of us has a Buddha nature and each of us has actually the capacity to not and to take that away from people is actually really dehumanizing. In the beginning of my career when I would talk to people who had caused harm, severe harm, taking lives, causing sexual violence, etc., and I would I would almost like let them off the hook, you know, and be like, well, there was no way that you weren't going to do that, and I would have my own clients push back and be like, don't make me a monster like that and don't make me a product entirely of my condition, like I'm a I'm a person with autonomy. And so they they taught me to give them uh, their full humanity and their autonomy. And so it's not that it was going to be easy or even possible at a certain moment under certain circumstances, but the capacity to transform is there and the changing of the causes and conditions can unearth the beautiful human that was always there. And so many people I know who have taken someone's life, so many people I know who are friends of mine who have caused sexual harm and, and used sexual violence I 100,000% trust that they would not do that today, right? Because they've both done their internal work and their external circumstances have sufficiently changed such that I have no concerns that these problems would re-arise. And on a smaller level, we can think about this within ourselves, right? Like you can think of a time, Wendy, and I can truly think of times, many times, too many times that I have done something not okay in the past. And I see that I've done my internal work and my conditions, are so different now that I have no question I would not behave in the ways that I have uh, in the past. So yeah. um, this is true of all of us.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I really appreciate the way you describe that. I wonder if maybe we could talk a little bit about traditional legal approaches and the system you know, as it exists and the problems there that I'm sure you saw well you know, as a public defender when you were involved in that system. How is that system set up and what are the issues there?
0: Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that Mind and Life has an international audience because I feel like um, I would love for all of you listening all over the world to know please do not look to us for being the, the doing anything good over here, really. I had a group of judges and justices actually come from Nepal to the US. To visit, And it was funny, we went to an American prison, we went to San Quentin, actually, which is one of the most well-resourced prisons in the United States, more programming, you know, the facility, etc. And they were all, I had intended for them to understand how bad it is. And instead, they were like, wow, this is better than anything we have. I was like, no, 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 no. Well, why is it, why are the structures functional? Why are there so many humans in there um, as guards, etc.? Because we dump billions and billions and billions of dollars into the system. So let's start there. So it might look better than what you might see elsewhere in the world in terms of you know the running water or the some things. But well, we're super overcrowded here too, um, but maybe less so than what appears in some of the countries of the people who might be listening. But please do not think that we have a model that you ought to export. And let me explain why. Um, we have 2.2 million humans in prison. And another 8 million under correctional control in the United States. And that number is growing and growing and growing. And why is that? Well, in part, it's because the system itself does not meet its own stated goals. Like if we're talking about rehabilitation, we just need to look to the recidivism rate to see that it is actually the criminal legal system itself that increases our chances that we will commit future harm. Mm. So... Imagine like you've produced a safety device. Something is supposed to make you safer and you install it in your home and you've just made yourself less safe. Like the thing backfires and it harms you somehow. That's what we're doing with our criminal legal system in the United States. And recidivism is just one piece of it, right? It's like the racial and ethnic disparities are unimaginably severe. The number of Latine, African-American folks were locked up, indigenous people locked up at such a disproportionate rate uh, to their population in the United States. And then if you started to look at other things like survivor history, things of that nature, what is it that ends up causing people to get locked up? Uh, It's really, it's brutal when we see what those disparities look like. And then in addition, uh, the system fills us as a society. It's not keeping us safer. It's not meeting its own stated goals. You know, incapacitation is another stated goal. Like, we're going to send them away somewhere. Well, it's only a way if you don't consider that there are other humans inside the facility. You're not taking people away from people because there are other people. So when you think about the harms that happen inside prison, we're choosing to say that none of those people are people if we're saying we're sending them away. And then they actually come back. So they're not incapacitated for very long. Prison sentences are not all these super long things. So these are some of the stated goals of the system. And so it's failing at its own stated goals. Then I would say that when you think about who else it's trying to serve most directly, crime survivors. So when you look at data in the vast majority of places in this country, mostly people get away with what they did. So, you know, in some cities, 40% unsolved homicide rates, etc. So we're making a promise to crime survivors that they're gonna get justice through the system, but they generally don't, right? Restitution might be ordered, but there's no way for the person to pay it. Uh, We're spending billions and billions of dollars attending to the system itself that is not actually producing positive outcomes for survivors. Orders of protection are constantly violated, right? Like all the things we're offering survivors in some ways make them less safe. So when you think about domestic violence survivors, specifically intimate partner violence survivors, there are studies that show that only 50% of survivors contact the system, less than 50%. And of those who do, 20% made them less safe to do so. Oh, wow. And so th- we have stats like this that show that like people aren't even contacting the system for help anymore because they're worried it'll make things worse. Uh, so these are, these are some of the things on the survivor side. And then on the side of the person who caused harm, I mean from every formerly incarcerated person I have ever known, and I know quite a few, the system is devastating. It's devastating for them. It's devastating for their families. And in many ways, when I think about my own childhood, it was all of these systems that were in theory that were designed to protect me that were what ensured my silence as a child. I didn't want my father locked up. I didn't want to be taken away from my family to be raised by you know, somebody who didn't eat our food, practice our religion, speak our language, right? I was more afraid of quote unquote help than I was of what was happening in my home. So in all these ways, we can see that the system is really, really failing. Again, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. And when I think about all the community-based healing and intervention, and particularly the preventative things we can do, what are the things we could do with those billions of dollars that would change the conditions? The conditions that would allow all of these people with their Buddha nature growing up everywhere to be nourished. And I think about this with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, all the time. When you look at what happened with him, you know, he's this perfect baby, right, being raised in this wonderful family, and then he gets swooped up, and he's nurtured by the best teachers, the best tutors. He's surrounded by gorgeous, most gorgeous human beings, right? What if we started to treat every child like His Holiness? Mm. I don't think we'd have a murder rate at all. So, yeah. Thank you. And um, I want to pivot then
1: into a different approach to restorative justice, which is what you've done so much work on. And I've heard you talk about questions that the traditional system is focused on mm-hmm. versus restorative justice.
0: So maybe you could share those as a as a way to transition. Yeah. Thanks for doing your research, Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so these questions come from one of my first teachers in restorative justice. His name is Howard Zehr, Z-E-H-R. And Howard is known as the grandfather of restorative justice. And he's written many beautiful books on the topic. Um, the seminal text in the field is called Changing Lenses. And he is a Mennonite man who, in his own deep faith, uh, started to explore what would it mean to have like a covenant justice and he did a lot of thinking about that, and he started to think about being reconciled uh, with ourselves and in his faith, you know, with the Lord. Like, what does it mean to be reconciled? And so, came up with these ideas around restorative justice, as it's understood in the Western context. And he sees it very much as a paradigm shift. So he's also a huge fan. His book actually opens with his love of the book, Structures of Scientific Revolution, and oh, wow. um, yeah. So he's he's all about the paradigm shift and. The paradigm shift he calls us to is instead of, he said the current system asks these questions, what law was broken, who broke it, and how should they be punished? And the paradigm shift uh, that he says restorative justice calls us to asks a very different set of questions. It asks who was harmed and what do they need? And whose obligation is it to meet those needs? So the, what law was broken, who broke it, and how should they be punished centers the person who has caused the harm. And the person asking the question is the state. In restorative justice, the person who is centered, who is harmed, and what do they need, right, is the person who's experienced the harm. And the people asking the question is the community. Mm. And then when we get to that third question, uh, whose obligation is it to meet those needs? That's where it becomes a justice paradigm. That is when we start to pull in the person who's caused the harm. And then the work is around resourcing that person to meet this crime survivor's need. And it's also about resourcing the crime survivor for the needs that the person who's caused the harm can't meet, right? What else do they need? So how do we wrap around both of these people, all of us, right? There are no sides in the circle, that our healing is actually gonna be collective. Um, and there is no us and them here. We are all going to, as my other primary teacher in this work is the former chief justice of the Navajo Nation, Robert Yazzie. And he talks about this whole process is about moving forward in a good way. Like we are all moving forward in a good way together. And it really is based on these principal notions of bringing us back into harmony So this is what when people say restorative justice, like what are you talking about? Restoring is restoring us to our own best selves, all of us, uh, restoring us to a place of harmony, Um, even if it wasn't pre-existing, like we can actually get to a a more harmonious state, uh, a good state, a, a way of being together in a good way. And that might actually mean at quite a distance, like it doesn't mean everybody's best friends forever, but that we are in a place of balance and wholeness and goodness and that everyone is healing. Uh, the person who caused harm, the person who experienced the harm, all of us.
1: Beautiful. That feels in the body like such a healthier way to approach when harm is, is done.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that, but really quick, I have to interject on that, is that as you said it, I was literally feeling my body in the circle, even when I'm holding space for people to talk to the person who murdered their child. Hmm. And what does my body feel like when I come out of one of those processes versus what my body felt like when I was in court? McCourt court was not healthy and this feels healthy, right? So that was just, thank you, that was really illuminating. I was like, yeah, I felt healthier when I left the practice of law.
1: Maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the process itself and the circle and, you know, the preparation that goes into it and how it unfolds.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it depends. Um, There are lots of different ways to do restorative justice. And there are lots of people who call all kinds of things restorative justice that I don't necessarily think are restorative justice. And so uh, Howard Zare again, he talks about a continuum of restorative processes from, you know, non-restorative or pseudo-restorative to fully restorative. And I, myself, being a little bit of a perfectionist, I'm really invested in that, like, fully restorative end. And so for me, for things to be fully restorative, it involves the opportunity for a face-to-face conversation with the person who harmed you, with family and community all there, helping to come up with a plan to repair the harm, which is then supported to be completed and that such a process can happen completely external to the criminal legal system. And let me explain why. The minute the state is involved, things feel coercive. And the minute the state gets to decide whether it happens or not, it's not just coercive for the person who caused the harm, it actually takes away agency and autonomy and empowerment from the survivor. So when I've been victimized, I want to feel power again. And when the state comes in and says, you can't do that. You can do this. You can only do it in this way. I feel like a victim again. I feel disempowered again. Or even if I'm happily handing over my power, I don't want to make these decisions. I'm still not getting an opportunity to tap into my own power. And so that is why I want to do these processes entirely external to the state. That being said, I do, uh, I have in the past worked with a handful of really amazing elected district attorneys from across the nation who are very progressive and are very invested in the data that we have shown. So young people who go through this process, um, and by young people we're talking about into young adulthood now, we're starting to expand beyond this, have shown a 44% reduction in recidivism. Mm. 44% reduction. And crime survivors show a 91% satisfaction rate. And so these are both comparative match samples and randomized control trials now have shown this kind of um, outcome. So there are some really amazing DAs who are interested. in so what we get them to do is divert the cases before they even charge the child. Uh, that being said, children who go through diversion processes still often end up in handcuffs, they're arrested, et cetera. Um, and we like to not even do that kind of stuff because the minute the kid gets this label in their head that they're a bad kid or they've had that experience of the cuffs on the hands, like... That is something that is really hard to undo. That is another layer of trauma. That is reifying stereotypes about you and your community or whatever. That's just really unhealthy, uh, really doesn't help us build trust and, and move forward in a good way. So what does it look like? You know, first, uh, it depends on which way the case comes to us. I also now work with adults, um, sort of off the grid, I like to say entirely <laughs> gone rogue in a good way people who I know really well have reached out to me and said, you know, I want to talk about this abuse that happened in my family or things of that nature. Um, a young person in my community uh, was raped by his boyfriend, and he reached out to me. Um, his, his family reached out to me, and we facilitate dialogues without contacting the system at all. And so we work extensively with both sides, with the person who has caused the harm, to help them be fully accountable for what they did to be able to admit what they did, to be able to communicate about that, to talk about it without a whole lot of shame with neither defensiveness nor groveling, you know, are some of the things we try to work towards and prepare them to meet with the person that they harmed. And then with the um, person who's experienced the harm, really get them to inventory their needs and what it is that they hope to get out of the conversation. And then we ultimately find the right supporters who are going to support moving towards peace and harmony and wellness and accountability. Sometimes there's a little tough love in there and who's going to support the plan to, to repair the harm? And so this is what happens. And then we work after we, we have maybe one, maybe sometimes two circles or uh, conferences where we all share what's happened. People talk about the harm. People talk about the impact of the harm. People talk about what's needed moving forward. Uh, somebody's scribbling it all down <laughs> and coming up with a plan. And then the plan is created by consensus of everyone there. And then we check in with the person who's caused the harm. Is this plan a setup for failure? Can you really do this? What needs do you have in terms of completing this plan? Let's get you resourced for that. And then when that plan is completed, um, if it's a diversion program, no charges are ever filed. We have circumvented the system entirely. And, uh, you know, and if it's happening in the community, hopefully peaceableness continues. And I have seen that in a handful of the cases that I've worked in at the community level as well. Yeah. This is amazing. I'm assuming that then the person
1: who caused harm also has to agree to this solution and this plan. Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
0: Consensus. Right. It was interesting, a, especially with young folks, but sometimes with everybody, one of the things that the plan is about is what do you need in order to never do this again? What are some resources that you need, right? And so you really need the young person weighing in. I need this. I need that. I need to get picked up after school so I don't get in trouble with that thing again. I need new friends. I need like a grown-up to listen to me, you know, I need a tutor, I need whatever they talk about what they need. And, you know, it's really hard in the beginning, because often people are really defended because they've asked for what they needed a lot. And no one has ever listened or been able to offer it. But you find this is not about a heavy handed, you know, professional services model. This is like, you actually had that cousin, or that uncle or that somebody who has an auto body shop where you oh are you stealing and stripping cars and you actually really love cars well why don't you go work at the auto body shop and hey let's bring your uncle into the circle and see if he'll hire you you know and the uncle can be like no there's this whole other beef going on in the family and maybe we need to heal that and then it gets even better right and now you know the kids working at the auto body shop and and the underlying beef on that side has been healed and Sometimes circles lead to other circles and other circles, but it's really good. I'm in a circle right now where two other circles have erupted out of that circle where they're just, the. it's like this ripple effect of the healing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really great. It's really wonderful.
1: Wow. I love the way that this process, um, as you say, it centers the person who experienced harm, right? And actually what they need for repair, but also completely values the person who caused the harm and acknowledges the suffering that led to that harm you know or led to that act which i feel is so missing in our society you know so quick to label people as Mm -hmm. murderers or just like this whole concept of a bad person and that's all they are
0: and yeah i would even say that part of forensic psychology can be used as a weapon like let's find out what happened to this person and what's wrong with this person to justify longer prison sentences? It's like literally the opposite of what we should be doing with that information. Right. And the lens that
1: this person can change and can heal, right? And and actually allowing them to say what they need, which I feel is also not something often done in our society. You know, um, I think many of us are conditioned not really to think about what we need or Um, There's just so many pieces in here that I feel like are so transformational. You know, it kind of creates a system and a lens that as it is more widespread, it can change the way all of us think about these acts and and society as a whole. And as you say, like how we're supporting people or not and, Mm -hmm. you know, allowing the Buddha nature to come forth or Mm -hmm. the goodness in people and creating conditions where that can happen. So Mm -hmm. this is just all really inspiring. I wanted to ask you know, with your experience of meditation and Buddhism informing your view on this, do you bring meditation or contemplative work at all into the practice that you do in the circle?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, as a practitioner and um, a facilitator, I personally could not do any of the work that I do without my Buddhist practice, right? And so that involves making sure that I have done a very long sit and all my prayers and practices before I would, you know, even think about holding space for others. And uh, in the process itself as a facilitator, you know, my breath is my anchor. Uh, sometimes I'm actually doing visualizations. If we're doing a process where people are speaking and turn slowly around the circle, I'm actually sometimes doing visualizations about certain, you know, beings or, you know, a being in the room. Where, you know, they're sending light into everyone that helps me hold the space. I don't try to do it alone. I actually always have a co-facilitator, but I additionally call in a whole lot of other beings (laughs) to hold the space down with me. And that is always really beneficial. So that's on a very personal and very religious level. But the breathing isn't, right? That breathing is quite secular. But I do often open the circle with breathing and asking people to get to know their breath and use breath as an anchor. I often use that in preparatory sessions, so I'm encouraging people to learn to breathe. Well, they knew how to breathe, but learn how to know that they're breathing and to to become friends with the breath and to get to know their breath. I always say your breath is your best friend um, and better than your best friend. Because when your best friend tells you, you seem really pissed off right now, um, we get angry at our best friend. <laughs> we don't get mad at the breath when the breath is being jagged or shallow or this that's non-judgmental the most non-judgmental layer of information the breath and so I help people with that like notice how you're breathing and so everyone's done some breathing practice often before we all come together other types of more you know sort of contemplative things that we do in prep is that sometimes my husband gave me this idea he says when he's in heated meetings or things are hard he imagines His Holiness uh, the Dalai Lama on his shoulder hmm. uh, in the meetings and like how do you show up if the Dalai is sitting on your shoulder and so I encourage people to think about who is the person that helps you be your best self your most kind and honest communicator forthright compassionate who helps you be your best listener your most curious and open-minded self, that person. Let's think about that person. Okay, now that person's sitting on your shoulder uh, through this entire session. So sometimes we do that. Um, And really, where I draw from my practices, you know, in the lineage I practice, in, we're big on visualization and really fleshing out the visualization, right? Like, so, Gishikon Shrikshan, my teacher, uh, he says, see the Buddha's breathing, like when you're visualizing the merit field. And so I tell people to do that. This person is sitting on your shoulder. Okay, now, They just took a breath, their chest just expanded. Like, bring them alive. Like, literally, what are they wearing? You know, all of that. Like, uh, bringing the person alive on your shoulder. And now, you know, right now, His Holiness is sitting here on my shoulder, breathing. He's giggling. He's, like, joking with, you know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu right now. (laughs) He's he's being sweet, and now I'm smiling because he's sitting there being goofy on my shoulder, right? And so how do we bring that person into the circle is a really important part of the process. And then other ways... I think that to my mind there are practices that I don't bring in such a heavy-handed way. Like one of the practices that I really rely on in general is the Just Like Me meditation I learned from uh, Geshe Thupten Jinpa. But I kind of use a modification of it in just encouraging people. Like you see this person as your enemy right now. What is a way in which they're not your enemy? What's one thing you have in common with this person, right? And (laughs) sometimes it starts with... Well, we hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well you both feel anger. You both, you know, so and then trying to get them to say, like, do you think that their anger feels the same way your anger? Can you even have a commonality around the way anger feels? Like you have a shared humanity of the feeling of anger. When Wendy's angry, when Sujatha's angry, angry feels angry, right? And so at least that we can try to find a way in a little bit sometimes. So those are some some of the things I bring from sort of my contemplative and Buddhist practice into the process.
1: Yeah, and I love that just like me meditation and it just layers on, I think, from the whole frame of restorative justice of viewing people in their full humanity, right? Even those that have caused harm to us. Yeah. Uh, so that's, yeah. A, that's a beautiful practice.
0: Yeah, one other thing I would say that has come from, I know, my practice is this notion of causes and conditions, and curiosity about causes and conditions in the other human. And so while with survivors, you don't want to, you know, especially for folks who have experienced harm, we often tend to de-center ourselves and uh, erase ourselves, particularly crimes like domestic violence, sexual violence. So we want to be careful with this one. But sometimes we have this over-reified sense of the I in relationship to a harm we've experienced. So... I mean, for decades, I believed that I was a person who was doing something that caused me to be sexually harmed, not just by my father, but by many other people in my life, right? And polyvictimization is a thing. And I was like, what's the common denominator here? It's me. And that really causes this intense reification of the sense of I. And so for me, understanding the causes and conditions that gave rise to another person causing harm really makes it not about us like even when we were burglarized 2 years ago my immediate thought is what did i do wrong should i have you know i don't believe in the surveillance state but should i have had cameras or you know we painted our house purple oh it's, did we draw attention to ourselves it's like did my house wear a skirt that was too short <laughs> Just basically but that's what we do you know we immediately go why did this happen to me and really why has happened is because what was going on with that person. Right. Always. And it's so amazing, particularly in the burglaries, robberies, uh, you know, muggings, like that kind of stuff. The person always thinks it's about them. But when you finally get in the dialogue with the person and they always want to ask, why'd you pick me? And the person was like, because you were there. Right. Yeah. And so for me, there's a way in which we can prime people gently for that deep learning that this is not, you know, that we have over-reified the I and there's nothing like being victimized to like cause us to double down on that over-reified I and to see that the causes and conditions actually existed outside of you for this one. Yeah. So that is really interesting.
1: Yeah. I like how you're bringing in this uh, over-reification of the I and I hadn't ever considered that before why we blame ourselves or find a reason inside of ourselves that something happened to us and I don't know if that just sheds light on the way the mind works of its, you know, that's the information that we have in our minds and we're always trying to find causes for our experience and so those are the things that we can look at mm-hmm. and we don't really have access to the the information from the other person so that's another wonderful benefit from the uh, restorative justice process. And I like the idea of Slowly breaking down that reified I, maybe in some way too, you know, in the mm-hmm. Buddhist sense of kind of moving outside of this reified self. Yeah. So that's a that's a really cool connection too.
0: It's also just such a natural response, right? Because deep inside we know the only thing we can control is ourselves, and so when terrible things happen to us, uh, we think, "Oh, I should have been able to do something to make that not happen," and it's a way of trying to reestablish control too. So, you know, it's normal, and it's also like, you know, stuff's gonna happen. We can't stop the things from happening this is Some of them we can, but not all of them. And learning um, to work with our responses to it, it feels really important.
1: Along the lines of reification, you've a couple times made the point, which I so appreciate, about the need to shift our language around how we label the people involved
0: in these encounters. So could you share a little bit about that, your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to talk about, and because it really is just like, when I first started learning about this, like every part of my Buddhist sensibilities were like, yes. So a lot of the people I learned from are indigenous in this broader world of peacemaking and conflict transformation. Uh, There's so, so, so much to learn from Indigenous people many, many different places in the world. There are ways of arriving at a thing that feels like justice and accountability that does not involve all of this punitiveness um, and all of these uh, unnecessary resources. And so what's interesting about a lot of these languages is that verbs are the way uh, that almost everything is described. So nouns are just like boxes that things have to live in forever. But verbs are in motion, right? And are in flux and in flow. And this is something actually that Baum talks about. I think that I saw in the movie about his work uh, that he was trying to come up with a language called the Ria Mode, and that he was talking with Blackfoot Indians who use a verb-based language. But uh, So here's an example. In Navajo, Dine, the, the Navajo language, there's no word offender, uh, Justice Yazi said that the word is acting as if you have no family, acting as if you have no relations, is what he says, in a sense, acting out of consort with the notion of all my relations. And Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote the book Braiding Sweetgrass, um, she said that in her language, there's no word for a bay, like the, the body of water, that the word is wikwe gama, which means to be a bay. And there's an understanding in in speaking entirely in verbs that that bay will be other forms of water. It will be a stream, and it'll be a river, and it'll be mist, and it'll be rain. Uh, And so that sense of flux and flow is really important. And if we were to think of ourselves that way, you know, Eduardo Duran is another indigenous man who talks about this. Uh, He wrote a book called Buddha in Red Face. And um, he talks about, there's no word woman instead of saying woman, you would say womaning is happening over there. You wouldn't say there's a woman, you say womaning is happening over there. And so what does that mean? It means that, you know, all of this uptightness we have about the people are saying they're transgender now, (laughs) you know, in other languages, that might be a little easier to, to get it, you know, so that sort of thing feels really powerful to me it really meets my sensibilities that I am not a victim and my father is not a perpetrator. I hate those words. I just, you know, I use the word victim sparingly. And when people identify that way themselves, I want to honor that they are claiming that something not okay happened to them. But in general, I try to say things like the person who experienced the harm, and I never use words like perpetrator, offender. They feel like even as I'm saying them in my mouth and they feel like the same poison that like racial epithets have mm. and because there is a racialized nature to mass criminalization in the United States, those words are not in my mouth. they are disrespectful of the humans that they are put on and they don't leave open the possibility of change, which is ever present uh, and so I, I try to avoid those words
1: mm. yeah yeah, such important reminders and now that we're speaking of words, I'm thinking of two other words that I would like to get your perspective on. One is forgiveness and the role of forgiveness in this process. And then the other is actually justice. And, you know, that's a word that our traditional legal system in the United States is theoretically built on. But I think, as you know, you were explaining, so well, it rarely occurs and and what does it even mean in that system and and what does it mean in the, in a the restorative justice system? So, love any reflections on that.
0: Yeah, I'll take them in the reverse order if that's okay. Yeah. So for me, it's why I don't say the criminal justice system. I say the criminal legal system. And we don't call it the civil justice system. You know, we call it civil law. Well, so I think that it presupposes an outcome. uh, If we call it the justice system, it's like announcing itself correct all the time that they've already won, you know, and so I don't, I don't believe that. And also, if we want to be more accurate, it's a criminal punishment system. And so, is punishment justice? Well, we have been told that it is. But I really love this thing that my friend Danielle Sered, who runs an organization in New York called Common Justice, a restorative justice organization, she uses this analogy when people ask, like, what do victims really want? Well, victims say they want people locked up. Well, first of all, we've had a ton of studies now to show that isn't true. Um, And it depends on who you're asking, like which victims. And, And so, there's something really important there to be said. But even if people are saying... Well, yeah, this person hurt me. Of course they should get locked up. Have we ever offered them anything else? So what we are giving people now, we're calling it justice. Spending billions of dollars to lock up a human and nothing happens for me, very little happens for me, if anything, is, is what we're calling justice. So, and again, it feels very tautological. It's like you name the thing, the thing, and then you're going to say you did it because you did it. Yeah. You know, so for me... Justice is accountability. And so, again, that word has gotten really messed up in English. We're going to hold the offenders to account. And we see justice will be served. What we mean is punishment. But what does it mean to be accountable? So if you hurt me, you should be accountable to me. There's a really brilliant article written in the 1970s by a man named Nils Christie, and uh, it was a real seminal work in that that influenced a lot of people, including Howard Zare, which basically makes the argument that the state stole our harms. So there was never, in, in time at European sense, there was never a division between civil and criminal law. There was always the harm was against the individual who held the harm. That's why we still have wrongful death in civil cases. And we have, you know, murder in criminal cases. But The things you got the most money and return on were the worst things that happened, right? So if you murdered somebody in my family, I would get a lot of money. Well, right around then it was when the king was like, wait, you're all my subjects. So when somebody gets murdered, I should get the money, not the family. Mm, Interesting. And so conflicts as property, that's the name of the article. Our conflicts became the property of the state. So what happens to me as a survivor? The state is a stand-in for me. And so whenever there is somebody clamoring, clamoring, and there are countless people like this, to not have the person who killed their loved one get executed, particularly Catholics, will be like, not in my name. And does the state listen? No. If the state has decided that they're going to execute someone, they're going to. It's rare if ever. I can't really think of a circumstance under which the repeated... Please, leading up to the execution date of the family of the, the person whose life was lost uh, gets to stop the state from taking the life of the person who killed their loved one. So whose harm is it? You know? and, uh, and that, to me, is something that is tied very deeply to the notion of accountability. So justice, to my mind, looks like healing. You know? And accountability is a part of the healing journey. And so wellness and uh, societal wellness and individual wellness, a promise that this will never happen again. These are the kinds of things that relate to the notion of justice. And I think about justice, I think about the word law. And so we have these legal rules that the state enforces. But I like to think about the word law from a Buddhist perspective, like dharma is also understood as law. And what does that mean? That, That means to hold right? And so what does it mean to be held to our best selves or holding society to what we ought to be? That this is what we mean by ethics. This is what we mean by the rules (laughs) of engagement as a society. And that justice means that when you have gone astray of those rules, you make things right. You put things right. You make it as it ought to be. And that is your obligation. So Howard Zare says, Uh, that crime is a violation of people and interpersonal relationships. Those violations create obligations and the central obligation is to do right by the folks you've harmed. So when we've done that, we've done justice. That is what I think of as justice. Mm. And with forgiveness, forgiveness is a big word. When I met His Holiness, when I was begging Him for advice about how to forgive my father at a certain point in the audience, He saw my mental state he saw my raging and crying. At one point, I was like, just give me the formula. Like, stop telling me, like, the stuff. It felt, at that point, this incredible wisdom that was coming out of his mouth about consider the downsides of anger. And this. I was not in a mental place to be able to absorb these more nuanced things. I needed, like, I wanted a formula. So I think I interrupted him, and I was like, "That's this isn't, like, I need to know, like, how? How did you do it? Like, show me how to do it. And instead of giving me an answer, he just sort of assessed me. And it was just, there's this look of kindness and just total presence. And he said, do you feel you've been angry long enough? Mm. And I think that that was the most generous question anyone has ever asked me, because I knew from his face that there there was no right or wrong answer to that question, that I was completely welcome to say, like, actually, no. But then I was able to do what he was asking, which was the cost-benefit analysis, you know, what's the upside of anger, what's the downside of anger. And so for me, forgiveness simply means when you are truly done with the anger, having been angry long enough.
1: Hmm.
0: Okay, so when you think about this in relationship to the restorative justice process, on the road to having been angry long enough, one of the things that can really help you move there is somebody being accountable you know, one of the most powerful parts is just hearing, particularly in the sexual violence cases, but in all of them, is somebody taking responsibility for what they did, is somebody saying what happened was my fault, not yours. And to have that heard in the presence of other people in your families and your community, it softens things, it releases, you just feel knots coming untied at that moment is so powerful. And so some of the, Causes and conditions for being done with your anger arise often in a restorative justice process. That being said, forgiveness is not a prerequisite for participation nor an expected outcome of a restorative process. Forgiveness is an individual thing that will happen on its own time. But I can't imagine a better cauldron for cooking up some forgiveness than a restorative justice dialogue, right? And it's not Required. My father had passed away six, eight years before I was able to forgive my father. You know, he he was gone. He was never going to give me what I needed. Never. You know, he was gone. So, so yeah. From that side, I would say that we have to be really careful to not pressure folks uh, into forgiveness. And I work really closely with the person who caused the harm to have them not have unreasonable expectations that they'll be forgiven. That that's, you know, the person that they need to work on forgiving is themselves. And that that is also a third rail independent track of this entire process. So in some ways, the restorative justice process is running along the middle and people's forgiveness journeys of themselves and others run alongside it. Uh, But they might be getting fed by the thing happening in the middle.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear any closing thoughts or take homes from your work that you want to share with the audience or maybe next steps for the movement where restorative justice
0: is right now in the US and mm. yeah i mean i think that one of the things that's most challenging with the with the criminal legal system as it currently operates is that it is a machine and it is cranking along doing what it does and people are really wedded to it and so i think a great danger exists a great danger when we come up with a solution and we came up with it it predated it was always there <laughs> particularly in indigenous communities, but that systems tend to want to co-opt and to pull into and make it their thing, right? So there are, there are the DAs who are happy to divert, but then there are far more DAs who contact us saying, we want to do the restorative justice. We will have the facilitators inside our office. You know, just let's do it in prison instead, you know? And so, mm-hmm. and you know, having circles inside prison, all that stuff, I'm not trying to be disparaging about that stuff. We need the healing everywhere. And once it is within a system that actually operates at cross purposes with how it is that it it should operate. It's sort of, to my mind, feels like colonization again, or continued colonization, right? And so that is a big problem. I think another big, big, big problem is if the state is going to get involved in this stuff, uh, the bigger restorative justice process that needs to happen is truth and reconciliation. We can't even begin to grapple with how racial and ethnic disparities play themselves out in the criminal legal system until we own that the criminal legal system itself was Mm. developed out of the enslavement of African-American people, right? The first police were slave patrols. The police were actually putting down labor organizing efforts, that this is what these things were created for, that they were the enforcement mechanism. We call it a paddy wagon because it was specifically targeting Irish people before Irish people were understood to be white in the United States, right? So we have deep, deep, deep history here uh, that is infused in our processes and America has not done the work that we need to do. We have not done a fraction of the work that needs to be done in order for the system to start to consider becoming a restorative justice. People say, we're going to turn the legal system into a restorative system. I'm like, that restorative system is not a thing. Mm. (laughs) That's not a thing. And even if it were, there are some major prerequisites. Um, Brian Stevenson says, truth and reconciliation are sequential. And I believe that that is true. I I think we have not even told the truth. But I also think there are a ton of steps related to accountability, uh, systemic accountability that needs to happen otherwise restorative justice will just be co-opted and turned into another temporary thing and that will be disappointing but you know it's just like the buddha dharma it can't it's the truth you know how healing happens is just true so it goes underground and then it comes back again and it goes underground it comes back again so i think that the work right now is for those of us who've learned some things in this iteration is to leave some cave paintings for future generations are going to pick it back up again so that is that's Mm -hmm. a little bit what i'd say about the movement Well,
1: Sujata, this has been such a joy and I feel like your healing journey is so beautiful and and the way that you manifest it and share it and you you just propagate that healing into those that you work with. So it's just a a beautiful expression and um, I want to thank you for all your work and, and for taking the time to chat with us today.
0: Oh, you bet. Thank you so much, Wendy. Appreciate you. I really appreciate this conversation. This episode was edited and
1: produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.